the pitch. Swing and a base hit to left center field. And Camellia's going to score. This game is over. On an RBI hit by Mickey Thanks for taking the time to download and listen to the Philadelphia Baseball Review Podcast. I'm Patrick Gordon, founder and executive editor of the Philadelphia Baseball Review. Our mission is to cover baseball at all levels throughout the Philly region, with a particular focus on promoting the amateur, high school, and college ranks. Our aim is to tell the untold baseball stories across the Quaker City. So please be sure to follow me on Twitter if you're not already at PGordonPBR. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you may be listening. Also, leave us a review. And be sure to visit PhiladelphiaBaseballReview.com where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Now, let's get into today's show. All right, so what follows here is part of an interview I conducted with Phil Dixon. Phil's awesome. He's a Negro League historian and author. Uh, his work has been attributed to you know many, many things. Um, he's uh, been involved in the founding of the Kansas City Negro Museum, which if you ever have a chance, it's definitely something to, to go check out down in Kansas City, uh, the birthplace essentially of Negro League Baseball. He's also done uh, plenty of speaking engagements, plenty of educational um, tours to kind of promote the history and, and the great stories of, of Negro League Baseball. He's just an all-around great guy. So this um, sit-down you know, kind of goes into why he got involved in studying Negro Baseball, his um, concerns with future research. Uh, we talked a little bit about statistics and, and what that means now that Major League Baseball is is considering all Negro League statistics to be uh, Major League statistics, we talked a little bit about the history of Philadelphia and its importance in the Negro League scene uh, and some other things. So a really cool sit down with uh, Phil Dixon. Hope you enjoy. What kind of inspired you to get involved in in um, you know exploring and studying the Negro Leagues and you know kind of your journey? Yeah, well, you know, I uh, started off as a kid collecting baseball cards. And um, uh, my journey was through baseball cards. And uh, just being one of those little kids who, you know, uh, older people would say, this kid knows a lot about baseball. And, uh, of course, I played baseball. And um, and so, yeah, I was just like a student all the way through. And um, that kind of led me to uh, know a lot about the major leagues which helped me to realize that there was nothing about the Negro Leagues. And um, I think the only there was probably when I first started, there might have been four books or something like that. And I just felt that they didn't represent uh, an African-American point of view. And a lot of books still don't rep- uh, represent an African-American point of view. They're just history. And some of the stuff is even bad history. And I'm one of the people who will uh, talk about the, the bad work that is being done, right? And uh, it's not good history. I'll just put it that way. But uh, people are, are able to sell their books now. So you may have 400 books out there now, but I can remember when it was four or five, and it was really tough to get a book produced and and uh, get a company to believe that you had something that was worthy of recognition. So I was the first one out there on the African-American side who was really – pushing hard. I think the only uh, African-American who had written a book before me would be Okania Chalk and uh, uh, also Art Rust. 
out of New York. I think Arcania, Arcania was out of North Carolina. And I and I corresponded with him quite a bit. He was quite helpful. And um, so I was a young guy. I was always the youngest guy coming through, right? So I was in my 20s. And uh, I started writing what I thought was a representative uh, and definitive look at black baseball. It wasn't Robert Peterson's look at all. Uh, matter of fact, it was quite different. And even to this day, unless you're a real student of Negro League Baseball and you really study the genre, you can't see the difference between Robert Peterson's work and my work. So right. that was that was the beginning. Uh, I go back to the 1970s. I was about 20, 21. I played baseball. I was also heavily involved with uh, civil rights. I, uh, you know, I... Um, attended civil rights rallies and marched with uh, Ralph Abernathy. And, you know, I have things that where I went to hear, hear Stokely Carmichael and Lou Palmer. That's another one, unsung hero people don't talk about. You have to go to YouTube sure. looking up Lou Palmer. And those guys were my uh, inspiration as well as the people who lived in my community. Uh, and I came up playing on all black baseball teams. Um uh, matter of fact, uh, I think I was probably about ninth grade before I ever had my white first white coach. I was in eighth grade before I had a white teacher. So um, I was enmeshed in black history and black culture, and I wanted to bring that to my work, and um, I think I did. Yeah, and and Phil, you have done some outstanding work and research uh, in in this in this genre, and and I definitely hold you up to be one of the the preeminent names in, in Negro baseball history and, and, and authoring and writing, you know, looking at Philadelphia and uh, you know, especially at the turn of the century, 1900s, you know, Philadelphia was a hub for black baseball. Many, many teams here in the area, um, you know, dating back to the 1860s, you had Octavius Cotto and, and the Pythians. Uh, you, you had the Excelsiors at that point as well. And then, you had the short-lived uh, National Color League, I believe, in, in the 1880s as well. Um, you know, what can you speak to uh, Philadelphia's involvement in early Negro baseball? Well, it depends on how early you want to go. <laughs> uh, Philadelphia has been a, been important to a black baseball history, you know, all the way from the 1860s and the 1880s through the 1880s. Uh, uh, first of all, it's proximity. And in those upper and uh, uh, eastern states, um, you know, you could move around and get into different areas, uh, organized town ball, minor leagues. They were all big in there, but they were willing to play African-American teams. So that's uh, one of the reasons Philadelphia blossomed. And of course, Philadelphia had a, a lot of good ball players who came out of that area. So. Um, I would say Philadelphia, starting with Octavius Cantol, and um, who uh, had the Pythian Club, and they would uh, invite other teams from New York to come in and 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 would play. The Manhattans would come there and play, and they were pioneers of baseball. And uh, my my book, uh, The Negro Baseball Leagues: A Photographic History, gave me an opportunity to write about Coteau. And uh, at that particular time, he wasn't getting a lot of press. Um, things have changed now. <laughs> things have changed tremendously yeah. the past 30 years for the recognition. But the first color line in baseball was drawn there right in Philadelphia. So it wasn't yeah. drawn in the South. It was drawn 
and documented by the Pythian Club right there in Philadelphia. And this is some of the pioneering efforts. And so uh, I wanted that to be known because if you're going to be talking later on about the Philadelphia Giants and, and Hilldale, who came after the Philadelphia Giants, you needed to be talking about Octavius Catol and the Pythian Giants and uh, that whole history there. Yeah, absolutely. And what you said is so true over the last 30 years. I mean, Philadelphia, this is several years now um, that, it, that it's been there, but there's actually a statue now to celebrate Octavius Cato and, and all that he did. And there's actually on the bottom of the statue, and again, this is right outside City Hall in Philadelphia, uh, a picture of him with his teammates, you know, from the 1860s. And it's, you know, it's, it's really cool to think that the city has finally embraced you know, everything that he did as an activist and also, you know, on the ball field, um, although that's a minor part of everything that he he's done, it bothers me a bit that so many people walk by and like don't even know, right? And and they, they're just oblivious to who this man was, what he did, what he stood for, um, you know, and not even getting into what he did on the ball field. But either way, it's a good thing that, that Philadelphia has, has embraced that. Now, you kind of hey. alluded to this, and you've actually written about this. The 1905 Philadelphia Giants. Walk us through how good of a team that was, where you think they rank in the pantheon of Negro teams. You know, how good were they? One of the greatest of all time. Uh, uh, years ago, I wanted to examine the great Negro League teams, right? So, uh, you know, I, I looked at the teams that the players – said were great teams and so I started there and then um, used my knowledge and of researching to go digging through records and finding what I could to be able to tell these teams stories and then taking the information I had and comparing them against other teams for instance you know I think the 1931 Homestead Grays was the greatest baseball team probably ever assembled and um, and then of course I rate the uh, 1905 Philadelphia Giants very high. And first of all, I rate them high because of what they achieved. First of all, they had the greatest uh, infielder in, in baseball, a, pitter, a player by the name of, um, oh, shucks, I'll call his name in a minute. Um, but he was one of the great players, and they had him. And uh, so um, they had uh, Saul White was the manager. Yeah. Saul White was, of course, uh, probably the greatest manager as far as winning games in America at that time. And um, Bill Monroe was the player that I wanted to mention, the great infielder, Bill Monroe. And then, of course, uh, Ruth Foster, young Ruth Foster. But, you know, there was a couple of other pitchers who rivaled Ruth Foster, um, which was uh, Emmett Bowman and then also uh, Dan McQuillan, the lefty. So, But those three guys won 30 games each. And so in, in the time when major league baseball teams, you know, if somebody won 30 games, they were considered a superstar and, and required uh, reading for us for all time. You know, you had black players achieving that and getting no recognition. Another reason why I thought they were a great team. Well, first of all, they were the first team of that century to score 1000 runs. And uh, that had never mm -hmm. been done. I think you got to go to the 1930s before the Yankees do it. And uh, but the Philadelphia Giants actually uh, achieved that feat in 1905. That's an incredible feat—a thousand runs. 
So you got a thousand runs, and on top of it, you've got uh, uh, three pitchers with over 30 wins. Uh, in addition, you have people like uh, Grand Home Run Johnson playing, Pete Hill, uh, outfielder. Yep. This was a darn good team. And so I, what I did in my book, it was called the Philadelphia Giants, the 1905 Philadelphia Giants, the great teams, and it was in my volume three. And what I did was I went back game by game and and just basically did a history retro of who this team was game by game by game. And so I had to find all these box scores and then I would find the box scores, rewrite the rewrite the um, that particular box score because since they were traveling from town to town, you might not know that a person had hit triples in eight consecutive games. You wouldn't have known that. And of course, at that particular time, uh, you know, if you look at the statistics that they're putting out now, um, that's a period that they're not covering. And uh, I can talk to that a little bit later on, but this was a darn good team. And uh, from that team sprang many other good teams and Ruth Foster left there and the whole Leland Giants history, which is the Chicago American Giants history, took some of the players yep. You know, so not only were they a good team, but they spawned a whole new way of looking at the game as well. So that's a good team. And I don't go by how many Hall of Famers are in uh, on that team. I think that's a weak analyzation of how great some of these teams were because uh, uh, the Hall of Fame is never going to recognize all this talent. Sure. Yeah. And that's one of the things I love about your text about, uh, you know, some of the teams you've covered that you go back and day by day write about, hey, here's, you know, the the Philadelphia Giants were playing uh, an amateur team out of, you know, Westchester here as a suburb, or they were playing, you know, a team over in Camden, New Jersey. You know, it's it's an interesting day-by-day chronicle of what the team was doing, and it's awesome to see. It's something I've tried to do with the 1924 Hilldale team um, who played in the first Colored World Series. They lost to the Monarchs. But even so, that team, I've tried to follow through kind of day by day what they were able to accomplish. And it's it's such a grueling exercise as a researcher to try and find box scores that may not be readily available. And then, you know, you find some and wait, the, the categories don't add up. Like there's six runs, but the score says it was 5-2 or something. Some of the names are misspelled. Some of the names are incorrect. You know, so much of this, so many of the statistics are, you know, I don't even say inaccurate. They're just not, they're, they're not even kept, you know, how difficult as a researcher is it for you? You know, when you've gone through this and went back and, you know, I know I've sought your help and Larry's help before and looking for specific box scores. How challenging is that as a researcher to have to find these newspapers that aren't all online, right? I mean, thankfully I, you know, I'm very familiar with some of the libraries here in Philadelphia. We have access to the Philadelphia Tribune, the Inquirer, when they did write, uh, you know, about the Philadelphia Stars much later on and such, it's kind of easy to get those box scores. Not so much those early ones, though. How challenging was that as a researcher for you? Well, I I, I think it's just the opposite. Uh, the earlier ones are sometimes easier to get because there were more newspapers in, in yeah. the turn of the century. So say if you're covering a city like uh, Chicago, for instance, you know, you may – you may you may have seven choices for daily newspapers, and so you have to check every one of those choices. 
I think when I was doing Philadelphia, I know I did uh, Walter Schlichter's paper, uh, Philadelphia Tribune. I'm trying yeah. to figure out. And then, of course, the other thing is using the newspapers in the other towns where they went. So um, yes. to, to do a project like that, you have to roll your sleeves up and, uh, you know, um, and then you have to know your audience. Right. Because when I wrote the history of the Philadelphia Giants, it wasn't a book for the uh, people who want to uh, just look at a few pictures. Matter of fact, there's no pictures in it. Uh, right. Nope. But, it, but it's loaded with history and history yes. that, uh, you know, if you, say if you want to uh, write something from that, you you can use that as a reference. And it's a it's a good reference. And then I try to support everything that I'm writing. So I tell you where the sources were. And um, and even if there's like more than one box score, which occasionally they will there will be, but they don't always match. Yeah. So what I do is I will tell you how many box scores were there, and then I would tell you which one I used, and I tell you why, so that if a person comes behind me and they try to do the same research, at least they will know why I made a certain decision. So my books sure. are really analytical when I start doing a, like a great team series. And I have a new one coming out, the 1910 Leland Giants, which is going to be kind of fascinating. But typically, yeah. typically, there were more newspapers at the turn of the century. You just have to understand the newspapers and understand the news. So, for instance, uh, I know a lot of people now, they say, you know, we used to get our news. It wasn't all political and things like that. Well, uh, that's not even correct. It's always been political. So. Uh, it's it's not surprising to see somewhere to have the such and such Republican or the such and such Democrat newspaper, even at the turn of the century. Right. So um, so and typically uh, most black people were Republican at that time. So if you can identify what's the, uh, the big city Republican newspaper, it will probably have a little more detail than the Democratic newspaper. These are things that I've learned over the years and uh, through people who have assisted me in developing this knowledge. A lot of them passed on now. Uh, sure. And a way to research it. So uh, when I did the Philadelphia Giant book, oh, I I had well over 100-something box scores. And uh, so I wasn't just making things up. I did the documentation, did the work. It, it takes time. You got to roll up your sleeve. You got to be clever. But you got to stick to yeah. it to get it done. And uh, we were able to do that with the Philadelphia Giants. And that's why I can talk so clearly and honestly about this team. Um, and if I need to, I can pull out my book and really get yep. it. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I think there's only a select few people, perhaps you and I, um, you know, are, are you know the leaders in this group. But when you find that one box score that you've been researching for for the longest time and can't find, but you come across it or somebody shares it with you, I don't know about you, but like I'm just over the moon for the next you know few days. Like, all right, cool, I got that score. I know, for example, I searched long and hard for, I, I think it was 1915. The Phillies played an exhibition against the Lincoln Giants, mm -hmm. and I was really struggling trying to find this box score. It took a long time. Um, I ultimately found it because the Lincoln Giant or the, the Phillies were not going by uh, their official name because you know all kinds of different things they were going by. You know, I forget, like the Al Grover Alexander Stars or something, right? So it gets a little bit confusing. But either way, when you find that score, you're just, you know, you feel a sense of relief, like, good, I got it. 
Any any box scores like that that you ever remember chasing? Like, wow. man, I, I I have a string here of a bunch of games. I need that one or like a series between two really good teams, but you can't piece the whole thing together because you're missing something. Wow, I'm trying to think. Uh, man, it, I, literally hundreds of box scores like that. Uh, where I'm trying to, uh, <laughs> boy, I can think of some. I I know when I did the uh, Philadelphia Giants book. Uh, originally at the back of the book, I said uh, that if you have any more box scores, if you find any more box scores, I would actually pay you for it, right? But nobody, uh, yeah. nobody found any more. <laughs> it's a box score. <laughs> but I kept digging, and I found a couple of more. And so I revised the book and uh, came out with a, a different version of it, uh, a little bit different. Right. And a few things. Uh, I think uh, it was... Uh, Revision date was 731, 713, Okay. If you have an older book, if you don't have the revised edition, there's a few more things that I found. And uh, that's awesome. And, uh, so, yeah, boy, there is so much information that can be discovered. Uh, but, but, but here's the one of the things we're living in the information age, right? Yep. And what I'm finding is. Uh, people are able to find information, but they're not able to clearly put the information together to tell the story. Sure. So people are finding box scores, but they don't know they don't know how to tell the story with that box score. I don't know if that right. says it clean enough, but yeah, I'm finding that you know people are able to find out when ball players were born and when they die, but they, they can't tell you much more. Uh, and, and of course, with me, myself, I'm always finding bad information in other people's work uh, where they just didn't do the didn't do the scholarship. Uh, no. Right. And, and right. And there's, there's a few things more frustrating than that where and, and that has happened to me several times where in particular, looking back at the Pythians and, and you know, going way back to the 1860s, but even. You know, my research with with Hilldale, where I'll look at some scholars' work, and it don't get me wrong, it's excellent work, but there's you know I can't get their information to line up with what I'm reading from primary sources, say, or from actual news accounts, and I'm like, well, hold on, something something doesn't look right here. Uh, you know, that part kind of bothers me. The other thing is, um, a book recently came out. I forget the author's name. I don't have it right in front of me. Where he listed, or they listed, um, you know, all of the games between Negro League teams and MLB teams. And so, for example, let's say they would say the Philadelphia Phillies and the Lincoln Giants. But truthfully, although they're saying it's the Philadelphia Phillies, it really isn't. It may be three players from the Phillies with a bunch of other amateurs or maybe some borrowed pros from other teams. You know, these were kind of the barnstorming games, the exhibitions you know, whatever, but it's, it's so misleading when people, you know, ask or, or see, Oh, the Phillies played 17 interracial games with, with Negro teams in the 1915, uh, 1910s and 1920s. It's like, well, no, they really didn't. It was like two or three players that carried that moniker forward. You know, so it's things like that, that, you know, you and I see, and we uncover, but you know, you're, you're, you're kind of just like, all right, well, at least somebody did some research on this, you know? Yeah, well, you know that's that's a good example. Uh, I've seen that. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, going back when John Hallway was real active, 
And he used mm-hmm. to put numbers like that up. And that was one of the um, oppositions I had to uh, what he was doing because he would say, well, they had all these interracial games and the black team won such and such percentage of the games. And stuff. Yep. Well, that's, there's far more intimate details regarding those games than just snapping out that statistic there. And, Correct. You know, a good, here's a good example. Um, uh, and once you know this information, no one can take it away from you. So, for instance, uh, the East-West game. Let's take the East-West game in, in Chicago. Sure. And they'll say the East-West game outdrew the Major League All-Star game. Now, and, and then they'll just leave it there. Now, one thing about it, uh, Comiskey Park was uh, a big stadium. So sure. it could for people. And they continued. The, the East-West game was always played at Comiskey Park, whereas the Major League game was moved around. So yep. they might go to uh, Cleveland, which had very low attendance, and play the All-Star game there. And so you're going to have far less people even though the park is full. Yeah. So to just throw out a blanket statement that the East-West game drew more than the Major League uh, All-Star game, you know, I guess it's correct, but it's not right. accurate. No, you're, you're, you're playing loose, you know, with, mm-hmm. with the facts. There. And what happens, especially in today's society, and I teach some journalism classes at Temple and uh, Temple University here in Philly, and, and with media, people hear that and they don't dig deeper, right? Like you and I do – that's part of what we do. That's it's in our DNA to do that, but a lot of people don't. So they'll leave thinking, "Oh, okay. Well, they won't take it to that next level and think, well, hold on, what is the size of the stadiums?'" Or, you know, for several years the East West was a three game series, right? So in turn, they would hear those figures, and you know, "Oh, well, okay, it's bigger." Well, yeah, but there's multiple games as part of that too, um, you know. So it's that's absolutely yeah, that's um, a good point. You know, and you know, I, I see- now go ahead. No, you go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, I was going to say, uh, some sometimes the information I see just kind of puzzles me. And uh, just last night, uh, there was a picture of the 1930 Homestead Grays. And they were in spring training, Hot Springs, Arkansas. Um, and on the picture, someone said uh, their new catcher, Josh Gibson, is the third from left, right? And, and I and I know Josh Gibson didn't join the, join the team in spring training. He didn't join until the Monarchs came there. I think it was maybe July or August and right. uh, when he joined the teams. No way he's on that picture. But no one no one even called them on it. So I just said, hey, he's yeah. not on the picture. But I see these little things all the time. And um, what, I can tell you one that uh, I think is really glaring from the statistics. I, I will mention uh, I used to work uh, for the Kansas City Royals. You know, I was assistant sure. for public relations. And during the game, one of my jobs was to keep the statistics. So I would watch every at bat, and then I would plug it into a computer at the end of the yep. night, send it to, send it, send it along by fax. That let you know how long ago this was. So huh. uh, <clears throat> uh, I would notice that in the first month, you know, say maybe after 30, 30 some odd games or something like that, you might have a guy batting three fifty, or he could be batting you know, way above his average. But after you play an entire season, this guy's a 250 hitter. And and I remembered that because I thought that was real interesting. And so here we go. Sure. These major league 
a quote steamhead statistics uh, are put out, and you might have like for instance, if if you look at their site on the 1905 Philadelphia Giants, you'll see maybe about 10 games. What they're doing is they're taking the 10 games against other African American teams, and the other information doesn't matter. Well, sure. As they get into the um, 20s and the 30s, uh, I, I was talking to one of the guys from Steamheads, and he was saying that somebody batted 400-something in the season. So I said, well, how many box scores was that? He said 34. You know, yeah. and so the team's playing over 100-some-odd games, and you're going to take 34 games that they played against black teams, and you say, this is this guy's statistics. It's a right. bunch of bull. And uh, yeah. You know, uh, I don't like it, and I I express my concern about it because when I go places, people are now quoting that this guy is a lifetime so-and-so hitter because they're taking the statistics that they're looking at and they're using those. And um, once again, you're you're playing you're playing and fudging with the history. It's not yeah. accurate. No, and you know that has long bothered me. Where you go on different sites, you see different numbers, you read different, um, you know, whether it be Holloway or others, you, you read biographies. The things are different. You know, one of the things that I uncovered in in research, researching Hilldale was, you know, they played a lot of amateur teams and teams that just you know were, you know, for lack of a better word, neighborhood teams here in Philadelphia, and they would, you know, rightfully beat them. Um, you know, I don't know if I'm the person deciding what stats should count or what stats shouldn't. You know, do I count the games Hildale played against Atlantic City or Harrisburg or Washington? Do I count them the same as I count the games Hildale played against, you know, um, uh, an amateur team from Camden? So I totally get that. But I also then think, well, then we need you know, you got to be all in one way or the other. You can't just do, we're only going to include Eastern colored league stats or just, you know, um, Negro national league stats. It needs to be all games or, or some sort of delineation. But then the other part of me is like, Hey, I'm just happy. We have some numbers, you know, and that some of these players are getting some respect and, and some, you know, um, some, some, uh, you know, applause for what they achieved and accomplished, but it is, I'm trying to do some research right now in looking at players that played at least 100 games as part of a Philadelphia Negro League team. And uh, you know, I'm trying to come up with a formula to rank who was the best overall performer while in Philadelphia. You know, And, and trying to do that is so difficult with the statistics mm. that are, are readily available. And I have somebody that said, well, Satchel Page played some games with the Philadelphia Stars, so he should be up there. And like Satchel Page, I believe, played seven games for the Stars. And yeah. it wasn't, you know, it was more of a, you know, a money grab than anything. So it, it that part does get frustrating. It, it is very interesting how people approach this history. And uh, for me, it's, it's just important for me to approach it in the way that makes the most sense to me. And uh, I was just sure. looking here. I just want to give you just a good example. I'm just looking here online and i'm looking i guess this i'm at steamheads.com 1905 philadelphia uh-huh. but i look at pete hill and they have six doubles for him whereas if you read my book on the philadelphia giants i have 38 all of mine are documented now which of the six right. are a part of my 38 i don't know <laughs> but but right. i can tell you where he hit all these home runs and it's 
But, you know, this is the way I feel comfortable doing it. And uh, I feel yeah. that this history is just not baseball history. I feel it's part of my African-American history. And I have sure. to tell the history right. in the best way I can uh, for future generations. And I just felt like showing Pete Hill with six doubles in, in 1905 is not the history right. that I no, and I think that's a very, very absolutely fair point, and and I can definitely understand that. Um, where do you think we are right now with regard to old box scores and statistics? Do you think that there's you – know, obviously we'll never be at 100%, but do you think that there's still a lot out there that um, has been uncovered that – or, or that, that can easily be uncovered, or, is, or are we kind of at a point where – Look, we've exhausted almost everything that's out there. The numbers we have are the numbers we have, and that's it. Well, you can see just from my my Pete Hill example, there's a there's a lot more out there, <laughs> and so multiply right. that by all the players that played through the years. Uh, there's there's a lot, and it just depends how you want to tell the story, how how much you want to dig into this history, you know, um, and. Yeah. And a lot of people, they'll come in and they'll get a contract. They'll publish a book, and they publish that one book, and they're off to, uh, you know, to do a book on another topic, right? So they're not going to take the time. But there's a lot out there. There's a lot that's been discovered, but I think the the best is yet to come, in my estimation. Uh, and um, I just look at the books that I want to write, the books I wish I could read, and right. you know, and. And they're just not out there for me. So um, yeah. I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, and, and it can be done. And I think people need to get creative and don't try to make uh, African-American baseball history like Major League Baseball history. I think when you do that, you're, you're trying to uh, uh, make something happen that really didn't happen. So when, when, when they do right. these statistics, to me, they were trying to make black baseball history, like white baseball history. And it just doesn't work because they were two completely different animals uh, because of racism, because of the economics, uh, because of the way they were forced to play and the conditions and the leagues sure. being held out of the leagues. It's just a completely different way of uh, uh, playing baseball. And if you don't take that in consideration, uh, then you'll never be able to tell the story anywhere close to accurate. Right, you're you're missing the the biggest point, perhaps, in all of this, and how they were, um, sadly, different, you know, but uh, but uniquely, and I think, you know, depending on on what researchers you read, um, at that point in the 20s and 30s, it was, hey, this is our thing, this is this is what we have, and it helped so many businesses in the black community, um, uh, you know, it, it did a lot. So, right, looking at looking well, at the 1920s, and okay. and I have to ask this. The early, well, I guess it wouldn't be early. The, the Hilldale teams in in the twenties, uh, in particular twenty four and twenty five, playing in those first two colored World Series. I know we talked about the nineteen oh five Giants and how good they were, and I know you haven't written extensively necessarily about Hilldale. Where would you put that Hilldale team in comparison to the Giants? Do you think that they were, um, you know, anywhere near as good? Uh, you know, it's tough to talk dynasty, um, but they were a really good team for a long period. Okay, um, yeah, they were a good team. Matter, matter of fact, uh, when I wrote my um, 1931 Homestead Grays team, 
the team that gave them the, the most difficult time was Hilldale. Uh, mm-hmm. So they, the Grays had a really good team, but of course Hilldale did as well. So that's in 1931. So we go back to the 20s. Uh, Ed Bolden can't say enough about yep. Ed Bolden um, and uh, his his way of putting a team together and being able to lure some of the great talent to Philadelphia, either for Hilldale and later on for the Philadelphia Stars. Uh, he's an unsung hero in yeah. this whole in this whole. Uh, Philadelphia history, but you got to talk about him, and um, because he was the architect that put all of this together, and and even before uh, you get into the 1920s, one of my um, uh, guys who uh, lived in my hometown uh, played for uh, Hilldale, Dick Whitworth. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, Dick, I, Dick Whitworth's wife, uh, she was an artist here. Uh, still living in Kansas City when I was uh, probably in my twenties, and uh, she lived in the same house. But how about that? Yeah, it's yeah. She lived in the same wow. house. House has since been torn down, but I was able to get a lot of Whitworth, Whitworth history from from um, that family, and also his son, who's now deceased, was quite helpful to me. Um, and then also another great Hilldale player. Uh, went to Lincoln High School. I just posted a picture of him in high school, I think, on my uh, Instagram page this week, uh, was uh, Rube Curry. Yes, yep. He graduated. Yeah, and Rube, Rube played on those the 24 and 25 teams Rube was a part of. Yeah, and he was, Rube was a great player, a great personality. Uh, graduated from Lincoln High School, same high school that Frank Duncan and Newt Allen and all those guys graduated from. Yep. And... Um, but yeah, he was a Kansas City, Missouri guy. Dick Whitworth was Whitworth was in Kansas City, Kansas, but they end up in Philadelphia and 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 you know had some good years there. But no, that Philadelphia team um, was put together over time, and and quite honestly, yeah. the the nineteen twenty four Kansas City Monarchs, in my estimation, they weren't as good as the nineteen twenty three Monarchs, who I think was even better, a better team. But the Monarchs had Bullet yeah. Rogan. And, of course, uh, Bullet Rogan, in my estimation, the greatest uh, all-around baseball player to ever live, basically beat Hilldale uh, by himself. <laughs> he was a leading hitter and a leading pitcher in that uh, 24 World Series. Now, the next year, Rogan is injured, not able to play. Also, Dink Moffa wasn't right. able to play. And Hilldale pretty much cleaned the Monarchs up that next year, I think, uh, uh, Nelson Dean, who was originally from Muskogee, Oklahoma, uh, won one of the games, but that was it. So, uh, but that Hilldale, they were on a run, and uh, unfortunately, the Eastern Color League busted up, and and we don't really get a chance to see as many league games as we would like to for Hilldale. But when they were playing league games, yeah, they were a dominant force, really good team, a good team to uh, chronicle uh, their history. Yeah. No, absolutely. And then, then we go into the Philadelphia Stars and, and the Stars early on, 30, uh, what was it, 1934, um, you know, taking the uh, the pennant and, and going on. And, and after that, though, they kind of fell off, unfortunately, um, you know, the Stars. You know, you get into the 40s, and then you have, you know, this, this idea, um, Bill Veck, who, um, you know, has been written extensively about, 
in, in Major League Baseball circles, um, you know, was rumored to be looking to buy the Phillies in the early 40s. I think it was in 43 with this idea that he was going to then stockpile Negro League talent and end up adding five or six Negro League players to the Phillies. Because at this point, the Phillies coming off of 1942, one of their worst seasons ever, hey, they, they needed to change things up. And this idea that Vec would take over as owner, infiltrate, bring a bunch of, of great stars over. You know, A, I'm curious, what have you heard about that story? I mean, it's been debunked in, in numerous publications and books, but I'm curious to hear, A, what, what your background is with regard to that story, what you've heard. But then also, what if that did happen? How different things would be? Well, I'll tell you what, uh, before I t- uh, chime in on that story, I, I don't want you to jump past the Philadelphia stars of the 1930s too quick, too quickly here. Sure. Uh, the Phil- 1934, the Philadelphia uh, team was outstanding. They may have been better than the Pittsburgh mm-hmm. Crawfords during, during that period. Uh, Webster McDonald was the manager. Of course, they had people like Judd Wilson, who was just a tremendous player. Uh, and of course, they had Slim Jones, uh, the great pitcher. Yep. <clears throat> but you know, the guy who doesn't get talked about as much on that, and I have books by him, and uh, <clears throat> is a guy named by the name of Eddie Gottlieb. And uh, Eddie Gottlieb yes. promoter of that team, and he had quite a bit of control. In some cases, more control than uh, Ed Bowden. As to who would. Yeah, Gottlieb, and not. Go ahead. Yeah, Gottlieb was big in, in not just with baseball, but also with basketball here in Philadelphia. I mean, his name is is big in, in sports history here in the city. Hmm. Matter of fact, the NBA Rookie of the Year award is still called the Eddie Gottlieb Trophy. <clears throat> but yep. but but Gottlieb, Absolutely. Gottlieb basically gambled around that team. And uh uh it's f- he got them games, but he was not a good promoter <clears throat> for that team, the Hilldale team. But um, uh, we don't talk much about Eddie Gottlieb. Now, if you pick up my book, uh, the, the, the Dizzy and Daffy Dean Barnstorming Tour, I do talk about Gottlieb and uh-huh. the Philadelphia Giants in a little more detail. <clears throat> also, there's a great interview by uh, Webster McDonald in a Hallways book, in one of Hallways books uh, that talks about um, – Gottlieb and the Philadelphia Giants through that period. They were just a good team. Hold on a second. Let me clear right. my throat here. Sure. So, um, yeah, that's interesting history. So Philadelphia was awfully strong um, during the thir- and during the 30s. Yeah. So when they get into the 1940s, yeah, I've heard this story many times, and I don't know if it's true or not. <laughs> about uh, <laughs> about uh, Vec wanting to integrate the team. Now, I will say he integrated the Cleveland team fairly fast, but uh, he was still a year, you know, behind getting people like Satchel Page in '48. But he did get Dobie pr- fairly fast, so you can't say that he was against integration because he was he quickly uh, got got a player on his team and got a pretty good player too. Right. So, and yeah. You know, I have not dug deeply into that particular topic, <coughs> but I know um, Vec was one of the pioneers in the big league level for getting black players in. 
There's a um, – I'm trying to pull it up now. There's a really good book. Um, it's a fiction book, though, that came out um, about – I'm trying to find find out the uh, the author's name. I'm trying to pull it up now. I'm missing it here. But either way, there was a book that came out several years ago, a, a fic- piece of fiction – where it sort of played through an entire season as if, what if Bill Vec did do this? Um, I want to say it's the black, the black Philadelphia, black, black Phillies, something along those lines. I'm, I'm missing the, the exact title, but a really good text um, if you're in the fiction about what if this really did happen. And throughout the season, the Phillies added Satchel Page, and then you know Josh Gibson, and then at a certain point they added you know another player, and then another. And by the end of the the book, they're obviously dominating the National League with all this new talent. Um, But it is interesting to think, what if? Now, yeah, I'm with you also. I've heard this rumor a lot. Um, Most places like SABR and others have have seemed to have done research to debunk it. But it's still something that that comes up, um, you know, from time to time. Now, we know in Philadelphia – you know, we had superstars Biz Mackey, Judy Johnson. You know, you mentioned Slim Jones, who Slim Jones died tragically from alcoholism, right? That was that was Slim Jones. Um, well, it wasn't from alcoholism. Um, I think he, you know, alcoholism. You would think a person died from cirrhosis of the liver or something like that. Sure, sure, sure. Um, you know, uh, but uh, they said he had been drinking, and then they found him in the alley. I don't know if that's alcoholism. Yeah, or. or Right, but either, but it, right, but it it derailed his career, and and it's a shame. There's there's quite a few superstars that, um, you know, that kind of met that demise, something similar. But you know, so many stars. Is there any players that you can think of that are not household names necessarily? Um, so you know, that may not have gotten recognition, but spent a decent amount of time in Philadelphia. That you think, hey, these these are players that are also worthy of of your recognition. Dan McQuillan. <laughs> That's first tell us more. Comes comes to mind. Uh, great pitcher, um, great hitter, uh, great achievements, little recognition. Um, and uh, let's see. I'm trying to think. Another one I I would say is uh, Bill Monroe. Bill Monroe, who played a number of years, I guess he, I guess he had a couple of years in Philadelphia, but he was also yep. in Brooklyn as well. But Bullet Monroe was, uh, excuse me, Bill Monroe was one of the greatest third basemen that ever lived. But at the same time, he might have been one of the greatest second basemen that ever, <laughs> that ever lived. Right. I know when I was coming along, they talk about Pie Trainer. Man, if you if you read my book on the Philadelphia Giants. Uh, the 1905 Philadelphia Giants. I write a lot about Bill Monroe. It gave me a chance to write about Bill Monroe. Uh, this yeah. this was a guy. Once once he came up against Joe McGinnity, a famous New York uh, Giant yep. pitcher, in an exhibition game, and he told the guy he was going to hit a home run. Told McGinnity that, and uh, McGinnity laughed. Anyway, in the game, Bill Monroe hit the home run. And then he ran around the bases backwards to taunt McGinnity after after uh. the hit. <laughs> he was a showman, but man, this guy was a great player. And uh, so right. that's one that that I think about. Um, 
Uh, boy, of course, Judd Wilson now gets his recognition, but Judd Wilson was another one that was a great, just simply, simply yep. an outstanding player. Simply an outstanding player. Uh, uh, and, and the other one, I think, is uh, Webster McDonald doesn't get enough. Yep. Uh, not only did he have some great history there in Philadelphia, but he had some great history and some great feats that he achieved out in Little Falls, Minnesota. So, uh, but he's one that you don't hear them talk about very much. Um, and then, of course, there were some old Kansas City Monarch players uh, who ended up there. Dewey Creasy, that was one of them. Yeah. He played with the Monarchs for a little brief period. And uh, and um, actually, I'm trying to think of his name, uh, played with Hillfield, Hilldale, the outfielder. Johnson was his name. Um, George Johnson, I think. Yeah, George Johnson. You know, yeah. he had, he played him. He played in my hometown with the Kansas City Kansas Giants before he got to Philadelphia. So, uh, yeah, that, boy, there's there's a, there's a number of Philadelphia players that deserve some more recognition. Of course, Dick Whitworth. The time he was there, he was their leading pitcher. Yep. He, yeah. Uh, I, I I just keep thinking of of the names and. Um, you know the 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 twenty four twenty five Hilldale and you know starting lineup. You, you Otto Briggs at the top and Frank Warfield and uh, Clinton Thomas and and uh, Louis Santop and then Biz Mackey. I mean George Johnson. That team team was just loaded. Nip Winters. I mean so yeah, much good talent. Good and, um, Nip Winters. Yeah, and, I, and one of the things that I oh go ahead go ahead. No no I was going to say I had the opportunity. Uh, to interview two people from that Hilldale's team, and uh, and to pretty much drill them on uh, on what was going on in Hilldale, and that was Judy Johnson, and then also uh, Clint Thomas. Interview. Oh both. wow! I went actually. I went to Clint Thomas's home, um, and um, met him in his home, maybe nineteen wow. nineteen eighty two, maybe eighty two, eighty three, something like that. Now it's it's obviously been some time, but do you remember what their recollections were of those those really good Hilldale clubs? Oh, they had uh, Clint Thomas had lots lots to say. He didn't like Warfield as much. Um, <laughs> uh, he had lots to say about that and how much Warfield cursed and things like that. And um, but he had a lot to talk about his teammates. Uh, same thing with Judy Johnson. Uh, uh, it was a lot of talk about their teammates, and at that particular time. Uh, one of the catchers, Biz Mackey, didn't get as much attention. Of course, they had Santop, so Mackey also played the infield. So yep, third base. Yep, yep, yeah. It, that, that was a good team. Uh, you know, I have to kind of go back and revisit my great teams, uh, but I think their 2014 was mm, pretty solid. 25 was good, but it's kind of interesting how some years you can have a better team and still not win the world's championship. <laughs> Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean that—that's what bothers me with uh, this past season with the Atlanta Braves. So many people feel that the Phillies, oh, the Phillies were into it, you know, until the final week, and and the Braves won the World Series. So therefore, the Phillies are close, and it's sort of like, no, not at all. They're not close at all. Um, but yeah, now that's 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 the case with baseball. Yeah, when you're I, looking at stats, okay, right? When you're you're looking, when when you're looking at statistics for. Um, Negro League players, and and again, you're you're in a different area with with looking at them because you 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 know that what you see on seam heads or Baseball Reference isn't the be all end all. 
when you think about stats and, and you want to sit down and do a ranking, right, and, and say, all right, let me try and think of my top 10 or 15 or 20 players or pitchers, right? Knowing how some of these statistics just don't represent a, a clear picture, is there a number that you look at that helps you um, in ranking? Or is it more when you go to rank, you're thinking more about things that you've heard or things that you've read about certain players? How would you, as an expert in this, go about ranking? Yeah, I, I wouldn't use those. Me, myself, see, I would never use those statistics to rank any any player. Um, but what I'm going to use is I'm going to go into more detail because in, in certain years, if okay, when they, when they put these statistics together, they're going against uh, every black team, right? So right. if you go in the 1920s, and so say, for instance, you have, uh, say, the Milwaukee Tigers. Well, I know the Milwaukee Tigers might not be as strong as the, as the team, is the town team from, um, you know, from Akron, Ohio, that also right. play Negro League teams, right? So I, I just can't take that stuff at face value. Uh, and I've and I've pretty much always held that correctly. So if you look at any of my books, any of my books from the first one, you would never see a season statistic or a lifetime statistic unless I was able to compile it myself and then come back and reinforce it. So what you will see is I might say this guy had six hits in a game, and I'll mention the game, but you won't ever see a lifetime batting average and. And I'm, I can pretty pretty much say that you will never see a lifetime batting average in my work. But you're going to see a huh. lot of detail that lets you know how good this guy was on a game-to-game basis. That's very interesting because I, I actually have on our website, Philadelphia Baseball Review, I have sort of what I deem to be the best players <clears throat> and pitchers. Like I, I tried to compile a roster of you know an all-time Philadelphia black baseball team and on there because there's so little out there without me going or or finding additional resources I did revert back to you know Webster McDonald with an ERA plus of 117 over his career or or so and so with you know over 600 RBIs I never really thought about how you're you're saying it here and and how look those stats aren't really 100% which I knew anyway um, but I really like your idea of, look, if I didn't find it out myself and I can't confirm it myself, then I'm not going to mess mess with it or put it in, um, you know, in a, in a ranking or, or, or note it in an article. Yeah. And and, you know, that's just just been my approach to to the history. Sure. You know, everybody, you know, some people, they will disagree with me. But uh, one thing that I can say and I can pretty much say this um Unless I just accidentally put in a date that was wrong, right? Uh, you cannot go back and say, "Well, you know, he said so and so batted so and so in 1924, and now he's saying he batted so and so." You'll never see that in my work. I don't have to take mine back. Uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, because I just felt, you know, as I approached this history way back, and I was watching people like John Hallway, I watched Jim Riley. Uh, those were the two people that were pretty much active, right? And uh, yeah. I watched how they approached it, and I didn't like it. I didn't like it. 
because I just felt like it was uh, full of too many holes. And uh, so now yeah. you have a whole new generation of people uh, who are now doing the same thing. And, and so uh, people have accepted it, but I've never accepted and I can defend why I haven't accepted it. Uh, I think if you want to find who the greatest players were, uh, don't, don't start with those statistics um, unless you want to use those statistics to go out and find the games, right? Right, right, right. Um, but I would say you, you don't have to formulate your own thing because the competition that they went against, um, yeah. uh, how often the guy was pitching. Uh, a good example of that would be John Donaldson. I hold John Donaldson in in the highest esteem, but some people don't. Right. And and but I do, <laughs> I do. Yeah. Because I've sit down and studied John Donaldson, and uh, so uh, recently uh, John Donaldson didn't make the Hall of Fame. I think that was um, a major mistake. Um, I think he's he's not in there when other people are who were not as talented as he was, but he chose right. to go outside of the league because he could make a greater living there. Man has to make a living. And um, because of racism, if you don't, uh, if you don't value uh, taking consideration the, the whole story of racism, uh, economics, um, you, and, and baseball, you can't right. tell John Donaldson's story correctly. So, it just looks like he has a bunch of strikeouts, and he struck out people that that were that were no good. So, but he struck out the good ones right right along with the bad ones. And and right. when him and Jose Mendez was on the same team, nineteen fourteen, John Donaldson is the premier pitcher, not Jose Mendez. But Jose Mendez is in the Hall of Fame. How about this? Jose Mendez wasn't the dominant hitter that John Donaldson was, but Jose Mendez is in the Hall of Fame, and not John Donaldson. Yeah. How do we correct this with the Hall of Fame, do you think? I mean, that's probably a whole other podcast in and of itself, the issues with the Baseball Hall of Fame. But thinking about it just from the Negro standpoint, how do we – I mean, there's so many more players deserving of of enshrinement there. What do you think should happen? Um, you know, I mean, obviously we have the, the Hall of Fame in Kansas City, which, um, you know, Kendrick has done an outstanding job with in, in developing and building and and getting word about. And I love seeing the major league players that go to Kansas City and, you know, stop over and, and, and show it on social media and stuff. But as far as Cooperstown, what, what should Major League Baseball or the Hall of Fame be doing to kind of get, you know, more respect to these guys that, that rightfully deserve it? Well, I I think that the Hall of Fame – and this is just my opinion. I think that the Hall of Fame wanted to get a certain percentage of black people in the Hall of Fame that represented that represented the number of black people in the United States. And they're done. Huh. They're done. We may not see another Negro League player get to the Hall of Fame in our lifetime. Right now, that would be a shame. the vote being 10 years from now. And if you look at the... Uh, yeah. The vote, the one they had this year, they put Buck O'Neill. And I was a part of that process of selecting the player. So some of the uh, information that I'm saying or not saying comes from my experience uh, with that sure. process. Right. But, uh, yeah, we may be looking at our last Negro Leaguer. And then the other thing, I mentioned this in 2006. I said you needed to get people who uh, 
had the knowledge on the uh, selection committee. Uh, this year, when it came yeah. time to vote, I was on the committee who selected players for the ballot. But when it came time to vote, they bumped me off. So I, I, they took my vote away. So I couldn't vote for hmm. some people, even though I had more knowledge than some of the people voting. I mean, you know, you bring in uh, Joe Torrey to vote on Negro League players. He's going to vote for Buck O'Neill. And then after then, he's lost. Yeah. And uh, I could say that for a number of other people. So the Hall of Fame, I think, knows how to to load that ballot to achieve their task. And I think that the Hall of Fame um, has probably put in their last Negro Leaguer. And, you know, we may get one more. Hey, quiet is kept with the number of blacks in baseball. I have to check a little deeper. Hey, we may not see another black player in the Hall of Fame for another 10 years. Yeah. Not American Right. It's it's scary to think of the future of of the sport. And and that's one of the things that that I try and do with the Philadelphia Baseball Review is promote it at the ground level. So we don't just do the Phillies, but we also do high school and college. But you're right. I mean, I'm involved with youth baseball as well. And you can see sort of who's playing and who isn't. And it's, um, you know, it's striking to you. It really is. And, um, you know, that's something that definitely has to be looked at. Um, I, I think for somebody. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, you know, I think um, what what we need to do is not count so much on the Hall of Fame because they're not going to do the job. If, if, if you look at the Hall of Fame's history uh, with the African-American player from the Negro Leagues, it's atrocious. I can go back and show you all kind of interesting mistakes that were made, uh, the people on the committees, you know, uh, selecting players. People even selecting themselves, saying there was nobody else to select. Uh, I, I can go back the entire history, um, you know, and, and and it becomes a popularity contest. When Satchel Page goes in before Ruth Foster, that lets you know that there's yeah. a certain amount of uh, how popular you are. Name recognition, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course... Who has bigger name recognition than Satchel Page? But when it came down to the contributions, it, right? Who did more? Think, yeah, yeah. I think uh, it was. It maybe was another ten years before Ruth Foster got in uh, after Satchel Page. And believe me, Satchel Page did a go a whole lot. But in terms of making the Negro League what it was, Satchel Page was no Ruth Foster. Now, every year you'll see major league clubs or almost every year, you know, they'll do uh, a Negro league night. They'll wear the uniforms or, or whatever, but let's be honest, are teams doing in your mind enough to celebrate Negro league baseball to, to pay homage to it? Well, actually the answer to that question is, oh, of course they're not doing enough. <laughs> um, major league baseball has been able to capitalize on this topic. And now they're using the topic to show that, uh, uh, you know, Diversity is the most important thing to us, uh, but I I don't I haven't bought it because uh, when when you have events, you know they have the players put on the uniform that kind of thing, but there's yeah. no educational component to it at all. So there, there's you know there's no component that says let's educate our fans, and so fans are just out there pretty much uh, they. After they watch the players in the uniforms, they don't know much more than that. 
and uh, they go home and uh, it's all over with. And then they wait till next year to do another event. So and some teams have been doing it for many years. And I can tell you just as an African-American historian, I think the only team that has ever hired me to do anything was the Boston Red Sox. And that was uh, 20 years ago. Wow. What did they hire you to do, if you don't mind me asking that? I came in, I spoke at Roxbury College, and I spoke at another place, to another college. And the Red Sox uh, had me come in, and, uh, and they put the money behind it. And I was able to, to talk to a couple of universities. Uh, I think, George, actually, George Scott was at Roxbury, uh, coaching at Roxbury College uh, when I came. George Scott used to be the Boston Red Sox. So um, that's the only team that I've seen that actually that I participated that that gave me a chance to educate people. Maybe there's some other people, but when it comes to education, um, I just think that we're not we're not getting the best of the knowledge that's out there. Right. Yeah, it's always you know Philadelphia is no different. Um, you know, it's with such a a rich history. You know, yes, the Phillies have across uh, in certain parts of Citizens May Park, uh, you know, a plaque here or there. Um, you know, but it's there's so much more that that could be done or celebrated, and um, you know, it's sad to see that it doesn't really happen that often. I do think Pittsburgh has a um, at, at, at PNC Park. I think they have like a, a little museum in there, which is pretty cool. That to me. Um, you know, was was striking when I saw that 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 stood out. Like, all right, cool. They they're kind of embracing the history and and helping educate. But yeah, that's something that's always been in my mind. Like, all right, we'll wear these jerseys for a weekend, and you know, that's that's it. Yeah, um, that's pretty much uh, been been the extent of most teams' history as far as uh, education of the history. Right, is wearing the uniforms. Uh, you know, um, you could at least bring in a speaker. And right. sponsor, sponsor somebody to come in who really knows about the topic uh, to come in and speak and educate people for real. Those who want to know, you know, if you just want right. to watch somebody with a colorful uniform on, you're not going to show up at the educational event. But there are many people who want to know more and they're yes. not people. No, no, it's it's very unfortunate. Now, Phil, where um, what projects are you currently working on? Wow, I've got a new, I've got a new. <laughs> There's a few. <laughs> yeah, all, always a few. Um, I'm finishing up my uh, my latest uh, American Baseball Chronicles. It's the uh, 1910 Leland Giants. Really great team. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I'm trying to think. Uh, there's nobody from Philadelphia there. Actually, from Philadelphia, but there are a couple of people who uh, played for Philadelphia teams in that book. Uh, sure. And uh, they were part of the 1905 Willie uh, Philadelphia Giants, and they kind of reunited uh, in Chicago. Yeah. So uh, Pete Hill is going to be in there, and uh, Homer and Johnson, those, those, of course, Ruth Foster, who was the manager of the team, and they were all with the 05 Philadelphia Giants. So it'll, it'll be nice to see those two years kind of married together and see how well yeah. players progress. I have a new book uh, on Buck O'Neill. Uh, that's that's probably due out in less than a month, maybe two months. Oh, okay. And uh, congratulations. Yeah, and it's and it's uh, this one is kind of different because uh, it, it has QR codes. So in addition to uh, reading the book, fifty photographs, 
you'll hear be able to scan your QR codes with your telephone and hear Buck O'Neill talk uh-huh. to you from an interview that was done in uh, 1985. So it's not the wow. typical stuff that's out there of Buck O'Neill. Uh, we're into some really in-depth kind of uh, conversation. So it has just little pieces, maybe minute. I think the longest one is right. might, might be two minutes. But so it's easy to read. Uh, so that's a lot of fun. And uh, I'm working on several others. Uh, and I have a couple of boxing books I need to finish off. Uh, boxing and baseball, you know, those are, those are two things that kind of <laughs> go together in, in, in my mind. And uh, sure. So, so, and of course, uh, Philadelphia is another great boxing town too, as well. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, my favorite being Bernard, the Executioner Hopkins. Uh, but very, very long history of uh, of boxing and uh, at all different weight classes. And you know, we we uh, you know gyms throughout the city, and they're they're like these little holes. But the people there are so dedicated, and it's just. Uh, it's in the city's DNA. I think it's Rocky definitely pay, played a role in that, but well before Rocky, Philadelphia had its uh, had its had its print on boxing. <coughs> now, Phil, you mentioned earlier too about uh, revised versions of the Chronicles books. Now, if somebody were to go on Amazon, would they find the newest versions? How would they? Do you have a website? How could they get the new versions? Well, if they order the new version from uh, Amazon, of course, it's going to be the new version. Now, if you go and buy a used copy, it could be the new one, could be the old one. Uh, you can always okay. go to my website, which is nlbalive.com, uh-huh. nlbalive.com, and you can order it from there. And um, I can sign it for you and send it to you. So I always encourage people to go there. Uh, you know, unlike Amazon, you can get it from Amazon, but of course it won't be signed. But uh, yeah, I can right. sign it for you and uh, get it to you. So. Um, that's why I encourage people to go if, if, you know, if you're not on Amazon. Awesome. And then Phil, you're also pretty active on social media, sharing some really cool images, uh, from newspapers and other places of Negro stars. What, what's your handle on Twitter and Instagram for those, uh, listening out there? Yeah. At Negro league, man, at Negro league, man. And, uh, I think I've had both of those sites for over 10 years. And, uh, so I try to put some kind of baseball fact on my uh, Twitter page, um, and and I, I come up with some pretty creative stuff, and I put pictures with it, and you know, uh, to kind of make it interesting. But it's it's kind of fun, something to do. Uh, but um, I've literally done that for ten years, so you can just imagine the information that's out there uh, on yeah. on that site. So yeah, that's that's pretty exciting. And uh, so at Negro League Man is. And I encourage you to follow me on Facebook and uh, uh, Twitter, also Instagram. So I'm on, I'm on I'm out there, and I'm still doing uh-huh. touring too. Uh, I was scheduled uh, today. I would have been traveling, going to Minneapolis, but because of COVID and some things like that, we had to cancel. But uh, they're gonna sure. uh, they're gonna uh, actually postpone it, and we'll pick it up in the spring. Hopefully, uh, when you know things settle down a little bit. And uh, I, I was supposed to be Monday. I was in scheduled for Hiawatha, Kansas, and uh, we were going to do a uh, Martin Luther King Day event. And uh, we, we did the event, but not in person. It ended up being a Zoom uh, broadcast. And so, you know, I'm still out there and uh, and I'm still doing things with the Negro League Baseball Museum. Um, so if you come to any event, whenever they give events, I'm usually down there. And 
I always tell people, if you're ever in Kansas City and you'd like a tour of the museum, and I might mention, too, I know you mentioned that the museum was a Hall of Fame. Uh, the Hall of Fame sure. is not a Hall of Fame. It's just a museum. So it's museum. the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And I might mention, I'm one of the co-founders of that institution. And when we started it, uh, there was five of us who incorporated. It was uh, myself. And, uh, of course, most people know Buck O'Neill. Uh, with yeah. one of the original signers, and he was the oldest, and I was the youngest, and right below him I signed. And, of course, Lloyd Johnson, who used to pet up Sabre, Larry Lester was one of the signers, and a former ball player named Slick Surratt. So, uh, but yeah. after all those years, I'm still here and still involved with the museum, still doing events for them. And uh, so uh, I'm still active and uh, still growing, still learning, still learning. How about that? I'll be researching yeah. today, looking for interesting things, uh, to continue telling this story and uh, finish off some of these books. <laughs> Phil, I love it. And I really appreciate you taking the time here uh, with me, um, you know, talking about just talking about Negro baseball and talking about the great players and, and the history behind it and, and what more we can do to kind of continue to, to elevate this, this story that needs to be told. And, um, you know, I can't thank you enough for all your research and, and, and taking the time here today I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Yeah, and I would just say that just I just need to tell everyone that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, good work. Mm -hmm. And um, so, uh, you know, by all means, uh, somebody's going to roll up their sleeve and, you know, I'm not going to be doing this forever. So, you know, I'm yeah. looking for that young person to come through and carry on, right? But uh, yeah. there's lots of good work that still needs to be done. And, and um, <clears throat> I say original work on the history yeah well phil i appreciate it and uh you're awesome continue doing the good work stay healthy um let me know those tour dates when they're available i'd love to see you out here in philly maybe we can connect there and uh and have some fun 